My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vesby. And we are your hosts. Eric, we have an extremely exciting title to talk about today, don't we? Yeah, no, it's. It, I think it's our favorite King mm-hmm. movie. 30-time <laughs> uh, Academy Award winner, uh, which is a thing that most people don't know. It won all of them. In every category, mm-hmm. the year uh, the year it came out. And to discuss this with us, we have a very special guest. He is the current host of the Stay for Dinner podcast, the author of The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To, one of the founding members of Derek Comedy, and you've seen him on Community and Captain America Winter Soldier, Balls Out, the Untitled Sarah Silverman Project, and in 2009's absolutely hilarious, criminally underseen, mystery team please welcome to the king cast stage mr dc pearson dc how are you doing today hello thank you for having me back again again timer yeah absolutely i appreciate it and i try to really only pick the the cream of the crop the tip of the top (laughs) (laughs) for for those of you who are not signed up for our uh patreon we we've already done an episode with dc for Dreamcatcher, another Highly unfortunate title in the Stephen King filmography, but um, DC wanted to come back and he promised that he would pick a title that would really live up to a second appearance. And I said, fellas, here's what I want. I want the the audio quality to be better and the movie quality to be much worse. <laughs> and you have delivered. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your Stephen King origin story first. I came to Stephen King, I think the way a lot of children of the 80s and 90s came to Stephen King, I knew him as the sort of like master of horror. And he's somebody who his name appears on a lot of like scary looking videos at the video store that I'm not allowed to rent, nor do I want to rent. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend uh, when I was like in first grade, I want to say maybe second grade, a friend had a sleepover where his parents rented him the adaptation, the like TV movie adaptation of Stephen King's It starring Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. And we all settled in to watch it and we were all super excited because this seems like forbidden and grown up and scary and crazy. And we watched it basically up through the, you know, the famous, like we all float down here, clown in the sewer, iconic scene. And then all were immediately like, um, this is boring. This is actually pretty (laughs) stupid. We don't want to watch this anymore. It's lame. And for, for babies actually, and just all sort of collectively committed to turning it off because we are terrified. And (laughs) then I literally like maybe half an hour later was like too creeped out and had to sneak into the kid's parents' uh, bedroom and be like, will you call my dad and have him come pick me up? Because I'm (laughs) too freaked out by Stephen King's It. 
And I stayed that way for many years until several years later when I finally watched the rest of it on the sci-fi channel in the middle of the day on summer vacation and was like, it's still very scary, but somehow knowing that it could all be defeated with the power of imagination and an asthma inhaler made it somewhat less scary. (laughs) So that was nice. It's just the power of like narrative and, um, a satisfying, you know, conclusion or an ending to, to kind of uh, help right. dilute some of that. And ever since then, you know, I've, I've read a decent amount of Stephen King over the years, not a ton. I've never been a super fan, but every time we read something for this podcast, honestly, that I'm like, you know, we, we discussed, you know, Dreamcatcher, the book being a very, bizarre book that he wrote under the influence of painkillers after his accident that he now disavows. And even just this short story and everything we've read for this podcast, even though the books and the, the the stories have been a little bit of a mixed bag and then the movies have been, particularly this one, have been really rough. Every, every, every bit of it just makes me go like, I need to read more Stephen King because just the just really the amount of imagination and 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 detail that he brings to everything is unparalleled. I mean, it's it's so funny that I've I've picked two pretty rocky Stephen King adaptation so far. And I just keep coming away being like, Stephen King's great. He's the best. I love him. And I think the other thing that maybe we talked about the first time, but the impression that I definitely had growing up of Stephen King is just that he wasn't afraid of anything. Like I just thought like he must be the guy who never gets scared of the dark and and never worries about anything because he's the master of horror. So he's actually not scared of anything. And then I think, you know, being more of a grown up now and, and, and being a neurotic person, person and also like an author and writer myself, I realized like, oh, he's probably the most scared of everything. That's where it comes from. He's processing how that feels. And uh, so that's sort of my my King journey. Nice. I want to throw in a a little something doubling back to what you talked about as a kid, watching something to its conclusion and that giving you a little peace of mind. And uh, I got a story about that and that kind of ties in uh, to our title today in a weird way. I'm a film collector. I love uh, collecting 35 millimeter prints, trailers, that kind of thing. One of the last prints that I bought a few years ago, I went in with uh, a mutual friend of Scott and mine, uh, Mr. Luke Mullen. We went in together and bought a 70 millimeter print of Poltergeist. What I like to do is I like to get these prints in the Alamo Draft House, what a lot of the times after hours let me run them at their theaters and we would invite all of our like friends and but we nobody would know what movie they were in for and so with poltergeist i invited everybody and people were like hey can i bring my my kids like you would that be cool i'm like well <laughs> i'm not telling you what the movie is but it is something that is rated pg so if if all you're worried about is the rating you're <laughs> you're fine and they said is it scary i said well I think that that it's it's a it's a scary movie, but it is rated PG, so it's fine. It should be fine. I had a friend come and they brought their kid who was really scared of uh, horror movies and wouldn't watch them. And uh, of course, we introduced the movie and it's Poltergeist and it's big and it's loud. That seventy millimeter soundtrack and and like all that that stuff it plays. And my friend uh, came up to me afterwards and said that yes, his kid was very scared throughout the movie, but. Um, he was so scared that entire movie, especially of the clown, uh, the uh, the clown doll. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, but he said that there was something about how Robbie, the little boy in the movie, fights back and like tears the stuffing out of the clown that like 
flipped a switch in his brain. And now the kid wasn't scared of horror movies anymore because he saw that the kid could fight back and, and not just be scared of this thing. So there is something to your experience of finding closure, you know, with watching good prevail over evil in terms of, of letting you not be haunted by that fear of Pennywise in the sewer. You know, there is something to these horror stories, setting an example and showing younger people how they can approach their fears and and conquer them. And to this day, when that kid, uh, now a young man, sees someone dressed as a clown, he beats them until the stuffing comes out of them. For sure. Just on the street. Which is the correct lesson to take from that movie. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. And why is this relevant to, to the title that we've chosen today? It's relevant because a man by the name of Toby Hooper, quote unquote, directed Poltergeist. Uh, and he also, he, which I'm sure we'll get to in a, in a bit, but he also directed a movie called The Mangler in uh, 1995 for New Line Cinema. And uh, mm-hmm. that is the movie that uh, DC decided to make us rewatch because he's a masochist. Just a and, cruel uh, taskmaster. He's a very mean man, made us rewatch Dreamcatcher. And now made us uh, rewatch The Mangler. He's going to run out of bad ones to make us rewatch eventually. DC, why did why The Mangler? Besides our utter discomfort. Well, I had asked Scott for you know which are ones you guys haven't done already, and he threw out a couple of them. And then I think the first one on the list was The Mangler, and I looked it up and I saw that it was about a haunted like I I read it as being it's a little more complicated than this but I read it as basically being about a like haunted like washer dryer or something like I just literally (laughs) thought it's about a like haunted or possessed piece of just like laundry equipment and I was like oh we got to do that one that that sounds like a hoot and I was I don't know if I was wrong necessarily, but it was I was it was a different journey than what I thought I was in for. I'll say that it's not as silly as a haunted washer dryer combo, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close for those who have not seen this movie or read the short story. DC, how how would you describe the plot? This short story is very it's you know, it's short. It's from. Night Shift, which I, again, haven't read all of the stories in, but it's like an early short story collection of Kings. Mm -hmm. And it's basically kind of a little sort of almost it's almost like a really scary, like early, like Billy Joel song or something. It's like a scary (laughs) working class story about a not a not a laundromat, but like a commercial laundry where, you know, where they might do like sheets for hospitals and other institutions and things like that, like people doing like laundry on an industrial scale and that there is an accident where a woman is pulled into this machine that the people there call the mangler. That's actually like a big ironer with a bunch of rollers. And the woman who is working at the laundry who gets pulled into it is just like completely, you know, she's like mangled by it. And a local detective is sent out to investigate and there ends up being some kind of back and forth about like, should the, the machine be like shut down or the place be held responsible? And they ultimately determine like, no, it was, it was just a malfunction. The machine's actually working fine. It was just like a weird freak accident. And then the detective and his friend, who's like an English professor, just like a guy in the neighborhood that he has beers with, or that he and his wife hang out with is like, this could actually be like black magic and they kind of end up piecing together in a very again in a very sort of like 
just kind of two middle-aged guys in a neighborhood sort of shooting the shit, like put together that maybe there was like, that there were these other accidents and maybe one of the accidents had to do with a woman who was like a virgin getting some blood in the machine. And that basically just through a weird Rube Goldberg-y series of coincidences that maybe the machine has accidentally been fed the ancient ingredients to a spell. <laughs> and then they end up going like the, the, the one friend, the, the English professor friend who has like a passing interest in black magic, which what, English professor doesn't is <laughs> like, is like, Oh, you know what? I think it's probably just like some minor black magic that happens to have been done on this machine to make it possessed. So we'll go do like a pretty minor, like not a full exorcism. Cause that's really crazy. We'll just do like a little Christian white magic spell on it. And so they go and do it. Some holy water up, and some, some Leviticus and, in, and, and yeah, call we'll, it a we'll, day. Yeah. Just, a light, exactly. a light exorcism. Just like, you know. <laughs> yes, precisely. And then we'll go, then we'll hit the in and out burger and you know, it'll be <laughs> fine. And so they go and do it and it ends up, it turns out basically they're like, there's no way that, uh, this thing has had a spell cast on it that involves belladonna, which is, I guess, a, a type of nightshade plant because that doesn't grow anywhere around here. And then they end up realizing only when it's too late that the woman who got pulled into the machine originally had been taking a pill that is derived from belladonna. So actually, this machine is like way more possessed and evil than we thought. It's too late. The friend who's the English professor gets pulled into it. And then the detective kind of like makes a run for it. And the machine has now become like fully sentient, unmoored from where it's supposed to be in the, uh, you know, just like affixed to the ground in the commercial laundry and is like chasing him. And the story kind of ends there on like a cliffhanger of, oh boy, it's it's outside this house that he's taken refuge in and it's hungry and it wants to to feed basically. So yeah. The whole thing is kind of a like, there's just a, a a sheen of very much just like this is taking place in probably like a small, I was imagining like a small, somewhat depressed, like post-industrial Pennsylvania town. And or I don't know if they say exactly where, but that's kind of where I, I said it in my in my head. And that it it it's just again, it's like it's, there was something very small about it. And it's like a short story, and it feels like that's an appropriate amount of time to devote to a haunted laundry machine. <laughs> I have been reading or rereading on writing. It's like a kind of like a little memoir he wrote. The best. Uh, yeah, it's excellent. And there's a whole thing in there about when he got uh, out of college, he he went to work in one of these in industrial laundry places. He's clearly talking about, I think he mentions the mangler by name, you know, how working there gave him this idea. But another thing he mentioned that really stuck with me on this read was that in an industrial laundry, like they're getting tablecloths from restaurants and sheets from hospitals. And I guess I understood that, like, of, co of course, that's what's going to an industrial laundry. You know, I, I, I know that as a fact, but I hadn't considered the fact that all those tablecloths and shit, like he's, he's describing them all coming from like seafood restaurants and how they're just like soaked in like butter and seafood juices and shit. And that when they would show up, he'd like pull them out of the bag and they're just writhing with maggots. Ugh. And and that the the sheets from the hospital were, for obvious reasons, even worse, covered with blood and shit and all kinds of stuff. And they, too, had maggots in them. And sometimes he would find like teeth and shit in the uh, 
in the in the sheets. Quite frankly, I think the story about the the lobster juice tablecloths and the teeth in the the sheet is a better story than than the mangler. Just tell people like the fucking the truth at that point because that shit is horrifying. I will say that I think that the most interesting thing about this story is. King working to his strength of taking something that's kind of existed in this ridiculous, like either B movie plots or pulp novels or Mm -hmm. what have you and going, this is how it works in the real world. You know, that this machine just happened to eat a bat, you know, a bat lived in there, you know, and that got fed into it, you know, it happened to get that Belladonna, what was it like heartburn medication or whatever, get in gastro, like Tums, Belladonna Tums. Into it. Yeah, like, I it didn't realize Belladonna was in antacids. That seems dangerous. Yeah, yeah I, I thought Belladonna wasn't uh, something human beings are meant to ingest, but I guess I was wrong. Um, no, it's like having scorpion do, poison in fucking Altoids or something. It doesn't make any right. sense. But I do like the idea of, yeah, there are these, you know, crazy black magic kind of things in the world, but it's not like some wizard came and put a spell on this machine or, or what have you. It's just through a happenstance, you know, thing. No, that would be ridiculous. The, it got the right the right ingredients of like unlocking this kind of, you know, entryway to the it being a you know, possessed by some sort of random demon. You know, the virgin blood and the Belladonna and the bat, like all this stuff. Like I, I do like really like that that angle to the the short. I submit to you that a very specific number of ingredients happening to pass through the haunted laundry press to to summon a demon into it is actually way sillier than if, as you suggested, a, a wizard just showed up and cursed it to be haunted. Like, at least that, well, I mean, that doesn't, that seems more likely, you know, well, in a fantastic but, but that's, but how many, <laughs> it's not a haunted press. It's just a machine that happened to have the right, right things happen to it. There, there are a thousand, you know, thousand million trillion machines in this world that haven't had the, you know, bats and, <laughs> and Bellatana and, you know, all this stuff, right. you know, kind of line up into it. And, and the, you know, it, it only goes to show that every once in a while, I think they even they even mentioned in the the story that whole seven hundred monkeys, you know, seven thousand years of typewriters, and they'll give you the the complete works of of uh, Shakespeare. It's you do an unlimited amount of combinations, even though it's unlikely, you know, so mm. you're going to get get a, a result. I think once I cracked the code on it, once I knew the ingredients, I would start putting those ingredients into other machines <laughs> right, to see what right. ha- like let's let's feed that shit into a toaster and see what happens. Or you know the brave the brave little toaster is what happens. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's mentioned and it's the creepiest part of the short, and it's so creepy that they just wedge it into the movie in a really ridiculous way, is the anecdote about the refrigerator that trapped the little boy. And how, mm-hmm. you know, there are some things that just kind of have that draw, that evil draw, you know, and, and I, that to me sounds more like traditional King to what you were saying, Scott, that would have made a w- way more sense where it's, yep, just some machines are evil. Some yeah. machines are, are evil and you don't need to have this whole sit down conversation between two dudes figuring out exactly the ingredients that make a, a possessed machine. You know, it's uh, in the short, the refrigerators just mentioned of from a safety inspector who tells that story to our lead detective. And uh, in the movie, 
they for some reason have that old ice box in the oh industrial God. laundry and and it like there's a a, fa- a lightning bolt that goes between the the mangler and the the ice box and the ice box i guess gets some of the mangler's evil spirit you know it, it is it is so weird and then it just happens to and that ice box with the bloody handprint on it by the way it happens to end up just in the front yard of somebody who they say like i never ordered it i don't know what you know, I don't know what this is. I never asked for this thing. It just appeared in my my yard one day, and and it like traps the little boy. It's like they couldn't have just made it an offshoot story in the movie. They just decided what we need for this is to be connected to the Mangler somehow. Yeah, yeah I agree that it does even in the at short story length seem a little bit silly about the different sort of things that had to all of which you know had to butterfly affect their way into making <laughs> it into an evil laundry machine and i can even see a world where it's like an even simpler maybe more allegorical story that i feel like they were even kind of reaching for thematically in the movie is just like yeah somebody like they this place is like a non-union, very like exploitative shop and somebody was like overworked and they accidentally fell into the machine for like reasons of like managerial negligence. And ever since then, it's become haunted with the sort of vengeful spirit of the sort of, you know, the person who like was killed because of like capitalist greed, basically. And now it's this evil machine. And... I could see that, but there was something I will say that I just found like way more in the in the story than in the movie to kind of just work on a vibe level about like these two just like guys kind of shooting the shit almost in the way that you could imagine like somebody posting on like a message board for like very specific just like baby boomer kind of like retiree guys being like any of you ever have a mangler that has is possessed by a demon and then just them kind of being like, well, maybe if a bat fell in and then them just kind of like spitballing it in that way, like it kind of worked for me on a short story level. Like, okay. I think the problem with them among the problems with the movie (laughs) and this happens, I think so much in terms of in adaptation is where people get overly literal movies have a very literalizing effect and i think we Mm -hmm. maybe even talked about this in dreamcatcher where it's like things that can sort of be suggested or hinted at on in a book just become so much more clunky and literal feeling no matter how hard you work to make them not and they just go so hard trying to like literalize a lot of the details of the story to exactly what you said to the point where this cool, interesting, just sort of very Stephen King ish kind of like modern urban, like dark mythology that just sort of gets passed around the way it might in a small town now is getting like made into this giant prop and the whole, I mean, this is a larger issue, but like when I saw just this giant, crazy sort of Terry Gilliam, Brazil esque, laundry that they have in the movie like that the entire setting of the movie really feels like it's sort of like twin peaks meets the shire is how i described it in my notes (laughs) that it just like loses any of that sort of like lived in working class sort of like stephen kinginess that it might have had otherwise and when you have just this giant 
kind of old fashioned, weird ice box that, and, and they just, and they just lost complete. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but like they just completely lost track of like, how did this thing even get haunted? I think they justify it in like 92 different ways in the movie of like why it's, yeah. they're kind of going like, it was pretty haunted, but now it's really haunted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It already looked like something that Tim Burton would jerk off to. It, le- it just looked, yeah. And now it's, you know, now it's really gone around the bend. Once it got those antacids in it, there was no stopping <laughs> it. It does look evil, though, like from the get go, before it's even started like chewing up laundry workers. It's the most dangerous looking thing you can imagine. It's got these giant, like exposed chains that are like bicycle chains running through the sides of it and uh, a surface that's, how would you describe it? It's all black. First of all, so it's very ominous looking like cast iron. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like it's been like roughly pounded into shape by very large hammers. It just looks like picture the most dangerous thing you can imagine. That's what the mangler looks like. And yeah, it looks like Tim Burton's Batman Returns presents a train from Shining Time Station. (laughs) (laughs) And in the movie, not only do you have this, you know, sweaty, dingy, grimy laundry room with this behemoth sitting at the center of it. But overseeing the whole thing, we have a character who's not actually in the short story. And that is, what would you call him? Like the laundry mill operator played by he's, he's the owner, Engler, the owner. Yeah. Yes. Who is running around the entire movie on like Forrest Gump leg braces. Only they look a little bit more high tech than that. The high tech look of the leg braces does not match anything else going on in the movie. By the way, they look like sci-fi shit. And, uh, He's just like hobbling around on those, you know, from the catwalks above, like pointing his cane and like just uh, shouting at things. How did you all feel about Robert Englund in this movie and his character? I, from the very (laughs) beginning, I mean, that was like when I kind of saw the like production design of the laundry, I was in that it was so kind of, you know, Terry Gilliam or City of Lost Children or Batman Returns. I was a little bit like. Uh oh, you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like this, this story, I just feel like it really wants to exist. If you are going to adapt it, which I don't recommend, I feel like it wants to exist in more of a sort of like Norma Ray kind of real working class milieu rather than this weird crazy almost like magical realist fantasy world where it feels like somebody was like well what's a world where a a magical possessed laundry machine would exist and then they just thought of this crazy fantasy world where i just feel like that's so antithetical to the spirit of the thing that i was already like oh crap we're already off target here i think and then when we meet that character and we see him and he's got this weird foreman who's like got a very clearly like dyed hair and all of their dialogue was like weirdly like felt like even though it, I'm sure this was filmed in English felt weirdly overdubbed like everything felt oh, very yeah. looped and I was realizing like what does this remind me of and then I realized it's like oh this feels like this is the like Rita Repulsa scenes in like the pow- original Power Rangers show. You know what I mean? Where there's just something about it that feels very plasticky and dubbed. And it never, none of those scenes with those characters ever got any better. No. It's so funny. I, I uh, messaged Scott while I was rewatching this and I, I said specifically, is it just me or does it feel like this whole movie was 80 yard? That's additional dialogue recording. That's when people go in and loop lines in movies. So sometimes you'll see lines that don't really match up with the mouth movements. 
And, and I wonder if it's just because the laundry itself was super noisy or oh, whatever, yeah. but it, it, it definitely gives a, a vibe of like a really shitty Argento movie <laughs> to me. <laughs> and it, it, it does, it, it just takes it to this whole like other realm of just not really existing in a recognizable world. And Robert England, you know, bless his soul. I, I fucking love Robert England, you know, but he is, this is a few years after Freddie's dead. This is, but he's still in that like Looney Tunes character acting mode here. And they cover him in old age makeup and they give him a, a milky eye. Everything about him is so unbelievable and ridiculous. And then there's this whole weird convoluted backstory they invented for the movie about how the rich in the town are are all conspiring to feed their 16 year old family members to the to the machine so they can make some sort of pact, I guess that, that make, <laughs> keeps them rich. And it is, it is such a fucking Wampler uses the term Ill, ill-conceived cinema Ill-advised. a lot and Ill-advised. ill-advised. Sorry. Yeah. I, I misquoted you. And just about every decision they make in this movie falls in line with that, with that line of thinking. And in that bums me the fuck out because I am, a huge Ted Levine fan. And that guy never gets to play the lead. You know, he was Buffalo bill in silence of the lambs. He was like, people forget he was in the early fast and the furious movies as like the handler for Paul Walker's character. He oh, was the evil yeah. truck driver and Joyride, Like, like Kirby that dude. Kirby. Yeah. Candy cane. Uh, I mean, that dude is one of my favorite character actors. And I always love seeing character actors get their lead. Uh, yeah. Time. And he has a few moments in here, like his reaction to his hippy dippy friend. He's not in, in the movie. He's not like this studied <laughs> academic type. He's this like crystal loving, organic hippy dippy guy that knows all the the demon shit. But his reaction to the him like going, "Hey, like, have you considered it's possessed or haunted?" And and you know, he, Ted Levine has this great moment where he goes, "Oh yeah, sure, that's the first thing I thought of." You know, and it it is the most. Like, okay, that's why you hire an actor like Ted Levine to pull off a a line like that. But for the most part, he is struggling with the material here, trying to make it make any sort of sense and ground it in any reality. He's it's a thankless job. And, and, uh, and it really bums me out that, you know, his one shot at, at being the lead in a, a studio horror movie. And, and, uh, this is what he got. Also just like his character doesn't, if you think about it, and I agree with you, he's absolutely doing his best. It took me a while to piece together that that was him where I was just like, this guy is so specific. His voice is like two <laughs> registers lower than you would think it would be. And then as soon as I looked it up and it's like, oh, he's fucking James Gum from, yeah. from yeah. Silence of the Lambs. And then it, it all clicked into place where it's just like, yeah, did you ever watch Silence of the Lambs? And you're like, you know what I want to see from this guy is him try to Sam Spade his way through a weird kind of inexplicably New Zealandy whimsical feeling town that has a haunted Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, but it's laundry and there's a demonic fucking laundry ironer like that. Then this is the movie for you. Basically, have we got a movie for you? I just feel like, um, again, problem 1001 with the logic of this movie, but like, his character doesn't make any sense in this Mm. town. You know what I mean? Like he Mm -hmm. lives in this little, they all, I think they only, first of all, I think they only got one house set for the entire thing. (laughs) It's like his neighbor's house, his house and some like his other neighbor's house are all like the exact same house. And they're all this little like white 
idyllic cottage, which does make sense, if, I guess, if we're supposed to be in like an idyllic like main town. But then why is he the most hard bitten sort of world weary detective that we've ever seen? I mean, he makes Matt Reese and Perry Mason look like fucking Pikachu. You know what I mean? Like he's <laughs> so world weary and just kind of like, oh, I don't know, man. And it doesn't it just he's he is genuinely doing a really good job but it just doesn't make any fucking it doesn't sense. it doesn't fit and his character is so bizarre like they make a choice in the movie where he is now a widower that they give the, him a tragic backstory where he was driving and his wife died in in a crash yet he is introduced as one of his character traits is that he is an irresponsible driver still to this day like he just shoots out of his garage and like barrels down a one lane road like in his i don't know his like little 90s jeep thing jeep slash suv weird car that he has and it's like, then it's revealed later. It's like, oh, I feel guilt for killing my wife in an accident. And yet he's still driving like a fucking asshole. I don't know. Like, well, what was the idea behind that? I'm more concerned about the idea behind that jacket he wears through the whole movie. <laughs> I, I could not take my eyes off this thing. And I was telling Eric this before the show, DC, but it's like what you would expect a hard bitten sort of world weary city cop slash detective to wear. You know, it's a long coat, so it's got that sort of classic Sam Spade look to it. But also, it's like too fuzzy and and bulky, you know? It was like like they sent the costume designer to a fucking Burlington coat factory, and they were like, get me a detective jacket. And they were all out of detective jackets. But they had this thing that is kind of a detective jacket, only it's wool, so it's kind of soft around the edges. There's nothing tough about it. It looks like... If you had a large bear that you wanted, like a teddy bear that you wanted to turn into a detective, you would put this jacket on him, you know, if that makes sense. I'm not doing a good job of describing this jacket, but it's <laughs> no, it I, is I, I totally else. I totally know what you mean. And I do think there are from the fact of the sort of like giant magical realist like trappings of the production design on a larger scale to just like the sort of should be just like normal things in an American town or like a, just a normal detective jacket. I do think in some ways are attributable to, and, and I, I kind of could, as soon as we saw like the outdoor laundry building, I was like, this is not filmed in America and that's totally fine. It was just like, there's always that weird uncanny Valley thing or not always, but sometimes that weird uncanny Valley thing when something is like shooting another country for America. And I looked it up and it was shot. If not entirely, at least it seemingly a lot of it was shot in South Africa. What? And yeah. And, and, and I was like, which I, I do think that the actor, I I'm not sure, but I think the actor playing his friend, uh, the, the, who, who, in the story is just like an English professor with a passing interest in black magic. And in this story is just a full on like Grant Morrison esque, like black magic nineties counterculture hippie dude. And which again, makes no sense. These guys would never be friends. Like what are right. we doing? But I believe that actor is South African, his, his accent felt very South African is a very particular accent. And I think that guy has it. It just, again, contributed to the feeling. And sometimes an odd actor here or there would kind of have aspects of that. And it just contributes to the feeling of like, this doesn't take place in any normal version of Maine. We're in a, a, a weird upside down magical mm -hmm. fantasy Maine. And that friend, the the guy you're talking about, the, the sidekick character, have you seen American Movie, the documentary? Yes. Okay. He looks like Mark Burchard's best friend 
in that movie. Do you know who I'm talking about? With like the is... curly hair and the beard. That's exactly what this guy fucking looks like. But I think what you're sort of hitting on here and what I'm realizing the more we talk about it is that there's just a level of unreality to this entire thing. And as we're talking about it, I'm kind of appreciating it more because it's such it's so it is one of those movies where uh, like at every possible level, the wrong choice was made. You know, (laughs) it is still very much a movie. You know, this is a thing that got completed and you can watch it. But at any given time, you can just pause it and point to something on screen and be like, yep, that was the wrong choice. (laughs) Some of these some of these choices are like a little more off than others, but. It is one of those like magical bad movies where nothing went right. Every decision that was made was the, was the wrong one. And it starts from a big swing too, right? Every decision's mm-hmm. a big swing. Putting Robert England in that getup is a big swing, and it and it misses. Uh, th- there's also that guy. Uh, it's a, an actor named Jeremy Crutchley who plays the somehow 1940s newspaper photographer yeah what the fuck was that you you know that that has the flash bulbs which i kind of appreciated almost as a nod to to chainsaw because i I thought that that's what the idea behind that was that he would go this guy pops up and he takes those flash bulb pictures with the you know you know thing with the bulb and then he pops the bulb out puts a new bulb in and takes another picture that's another dude they just covered in old age makeup and he plays a, a Everyone double Everyone in this movie looks like the Six Flags guy. <laughs> it does. Yeah, he's dan- <laughs> dancing on Coca-Cola you know, hands or whatever to get your like four, they 45 like, They took up. like, okay, every, for whatever reason, we made everyone who auditioned for the Six Flags guy do their own makeup, sit in the waiting room. And while they were waiting, they were like, every, we were like, hey, do you guys all want to come be the supporting cast of The Mangler? And that's what they were. And then there was a, that's another thing that makes this movie feel so weird. That character was so weird. His character's name is Picture Man. Like it's just uh-huh. like he's a weird sort of in like an elemental like noir like drive or Sin City or something. You know what I mean? Like it really did it, that. That was one of those choices that made it feel like this feels like a weird video game that you would rent and then like return, you know, without fin- being like, I'm not invested in this whatsoever. Yeah. But again, a huge swing, but just never really fully made sense. That character felt like all it was doing was trying to feed in. Cause this is another thing I, I, I felt like with this movie that does make it, it I, I completely agree. I think this is a appreciable bad movie so many swings were taken somebody really built a world you know like you see so many bad movies where it's just like this is boring it just doesn't really work everybody was just afraid of doing something wrong and so they never ended up making anything worthwhile at all this is not that it is a bad movie that you can fully sink your teeth into which i really really appreciate you have to love that i think this movie is really trying to say something honestly like i think it thinks it's trying to make a point about like work and like time and like how time in our lives is like pulled away by like labor or something. Like I honestly think that somewhere buried deep inside of this thing is this weird allegory. Cause there's like, everybody keeps saying to the Ted Levine character, like especially his like Grant Morrison-y kind of like elfin friend, black magic friend keeps being like, (laughs) you work too much, man. You work too much. You work, you're working too much. You're working too hard. You need to get a life, man. You're working too hard. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it thinks it is making a point about like work life balance for Christ's sake. And that's another thing about it that I think it completely fails. And I totally respect. I think it is making a point about working class conditions. 
And I think that when King wrote it, it, that was absolutely on his mind. He grew up in poverty. He and his mother worked these kind of jobs where, you know, six kind of thrown, yeah, exploited and thrown into the gaping maw of the the working class industry, whether that be in like a fucking steel mill or a laundry mill or whatever. Lots of mill action going on back in uh, in King's early history. But, you know, he he was writing about experiences that he had some firsthand experience with graveyard shift is another story that that came out of his time working these kind of jobs and a bunch of guys that had to go clear out a basement and they found fucking rats down there the size of dogs. He is speaking to a certain kind of horror that would, I, I, I think, uh, particularly resonate with working class folks. And it, it's also worth pointing out that at this time in his career, he was selling all these stories to men's magazines. I think all of that is intentional and I think it bleeds through into the movie. What's interesting is that Toby Hooper directed this and Toby Hooper quite famously directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the best movie he ever made by a wide margin. And one of the more popular reads on Chainsaw is that it's a statement about Vietnam and uh, the youth of America being sort of fed into into that meat grinder. So I don't think you're off base by saying that there is some sort of allegory at play here. I think it's muddled and I think it's trampled under the parade of bad decisions that are made on screen besides that. But but I do think it's there. Pretty early on, to your point, there's a um, sign in the laundry that literally says labor shall make you free, which is like a direct fuck. I'm, I'm, I swear to God. And it it which is like a direct reference to what was on the gates outside of Auschwitz. Like it's, it's a, it's it's like a direct, direct, not homage, but like it's it's pulling from that like iconography. And I think it just makes all of the, all of the ways the movie doesn't work that much more of a bummer. Cause I do think there is absolutely, I mean, just thinking about like industrial machines, people having to work them when they're, or again, I mean, we've, we've seen with like what is, you know, happening right now in America with like these, you know, like meat packing plants where people mm-hmm. are, you know, packed so tightly that they can't, that they, it's just horrible for like getting and passing on COVID. And they're also, those workers are some of the people who can least likely afford to get sick and just how it is literally. It's like, oh yeah, you work in a meat grinding plant and you are being treated in that way. Like it's so right there. I think all those themes are really, really present and available and salient. And I think really ripe for like horror and the way horror can really like say something. I just think that this movie layered so much other shit on top of it and, and, and layers of old age makeup and weird sort of like noir characters that didn't need to be there that it just is sort of like completely gets buried but that is why I think you spend the first half of the movie with everybody being like, you got to get a life, man. You work too hard. You work too hard. And then the last third of the movie with people being like, no time. There's no time. Like they say time more than in Back to the Future in the last half of this movie. <laughs> and again, I do think that it fails in that way, but you have to respect how much they like went for it. I'm concerned right now because... As we're describing this, as I'm listening to, <laughs> to to y'all describe this and myself, we're making it sound much more interesting than it is, I think. And I don't want to be responsible 
for anyone going out and spending $3.99 to rent this movie on <laughs> on Amazon Prime. I don't want that blood on my fucking hands. Okay. So I'm not recommending this movie, but I do think, you know, Eric Eric brought this up a minute ago, but I preach very heavily about this idea of ill-advised cinema. Movies that fall under that banner are a particular favorite of mine. It's hard to define the difference between just a regular so good it's bad movie, for lack of a better term, and ill-advised, like an entry in the ill-advised cinema canon. On paper, this is absolutely an ill-advised movie, but it's just not fun to watch. I, I got no pleasure watching this thing. In fact, I had a really hard time sort of uh, like my eyeballs didn't like resting on this thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, like oh, it's on TV and I'm looking at it and I'm like, man, I don't fucking I would I, I would rather fold laundry. haha, Or check my phone or, you know, chew on my fingernails or do anything other than like pay attention to to this movie. The execution of it, despite the fact that all those um all those elements are there for like a classic of the ill-advised cinema genre. It doesn't work for me. I think this is a legitimately terrible movie. It's in no way an entertaining film. And no. uh, I can say that not just from my old man, you know, pushing 40 experience watching it now, but I saw this when it came out. I was 14 when this came out and I saw it in the theater. And what? I remember even then going like, it has everything I like. It has Freddy Krueger in it. It has the guy that, you know, made Chainsaw Massacre directing it. It has the dude from Silence of the Lambs and it's based on, you know, a Stephen King story. And everything about this should mean that this is one of my favorite movies. And it is just, it's hard to get through. It, it really is. It's more than just the unpleasantness it gives off. It's It's incompetent to a certain degree, which just makes me sad for all the big swings it makes like if if more than if they just connected on a couple of them you know then then i, I don't think we would be <laughs> feeling bad but it's like no they're whipping it, it across it, the board it, it's definitely one that's more interesting in this setting it's more interesting to academically kind of talk about it and put it in its perspective it's interesting to look at it like as a new line cinema picture a few years before lord of the rings this is the kind of thing that they were making these like just really kind of awful theatrical that should be direct to video but are theatrical b movies that don't work and then they turn around and make one of the the best trilogies ever put to film you know it's that is interesting but like the movie itself is not so much i would like to present to both of you now a quote that i came upon while i was like researching this the critical response to this movie was not kind as you can imagine but a few years ago scout Tafoya wrote uh <laughs> i saw this yeah, wrote a wrote sort of a, a defense of this for um, RogerEbert.com. Let me throw a few choice quotes at you from this take. Tafoya considers the film to be, quote, up there with Christine and The Shining as Wrong. among the best Stephen King adaptations in that it's a stylistic representation of the director's obsessions, not just a boilerplate transposition of his text. I agree with that, but let's loop back around to that in a second. I can't help but get angry and defeated imagining what it must have been like for one of this country's most obviously talented filmmakers to continually get the short end of the stick, critically and commercially. It's perversely fitting that Toby Hooper's greatest failure is about the very machinery of capitalism that would imprison him in the world of low-budget productions. The Mangler was a kind of oddball film with an unknowable center that became a rarity in American cinema. That just makes it that much more special. I would like to have a conversation now about Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper is 
put forth as a, a master of American horror filmmaking. And that is entirely because of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is bulletproof as far as I'm concerned. That is a, that is a major work. I would it's a put, lightning in a bottle movie. Yeah. Yes. Just, I would, I would put a miracle. Chainsaw up there with The Shining in terms of, or, or The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby in terms of like major horror efforts that, you know, have, have influenced God knows how many fucking horror films since. But in watching this and researching it, I, I took a minute to sort of look over Toby Hooper's filmography and there's only like three or four movies amongst his entire fucking body of work that I would actually go to bat for. You know, I'm not trying to uh, be mean spirited here or disparage the dead. Rest in peace, Toby Hooper. But he made a lot of lot of trash movies. So I'm curious what y'all's answer to the question is straight up. Was Toby Hooper a good director? DC, I'll let you. <laughs> Go first. <laughs> Feed me into the mangler of hot takes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I growing up, like I, I didn't have a super long phase of primarily being a horror fan, but I definitely had a like adolescent and early teen, you know, horror binging period. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of the movies that I watched the most in that mm -hmm. period. I used a weird a program. I don't even think Microsoft remembers it made. That was a program that you could use to make animated GIFs before they became our <laughs> primary means of expression to make a, uh, a like Teletubby Chainsaw Massacre, like animated quote unquote, short that was just I didn't really realize I was like oh I'm making this animation and then I didn't really think about what gifts were and I was like oh it's just okay there it goes again you know what I mean it was like a looping you know thing so I was a really really big fan of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I was in my like teenage horror fan uh, or adolescent and teenage kind of like oh I'm really into horror right now phase and I watched it a bunch of times I never really got into the sequels and as a kid, I love, love, loved Poltergeist when I first saw it, kind of in that same time frame, maybe a little bit before. And um, I, you know, there's obviously weird authorship questions about that movie in terms of like, did Spielberg really kind of direct it? And, you know, who knows? It's a tough, uh, I did like a whole other podcast about Poltergeist earlier this year. Still love that movie. I mean, and it's not, after a certain point, super productive to try to parse out like who exactly was responsible for what with that. Although obviously so many of the things that are great about it feel very Spielberg. And then I don't not having his filmography in front of me. I'm honestly like, there's not a bunch of other movies that I know to be Toby Hooper movies that are leaping to mind where I go like, that's amazing. But I will say like, even this movie for how like misguided I do think it is and how like also poorly executed in other ways. Like I definitely think there's a vision at work here. It feels like a very different vision than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that's okay. Like I think he's definitely a very interesting filmmaker who made at least one really, really great movie. I don't, I guess I don't like, he's a weird one. Like just sometimes you do see somebody where they kind of get stuck in a schlocky place with the movies that they're able to get made. And it is always a question of like, are they then the ones that keep making the movie kind of schlocky or not great or not connecting? Or 
Is that just what they have to work with? And I feel like horror is the kind of genre where it's like, should that matter all that much if you don't have a ton of money to work with? Like, you right. know, I don't know. I've seen no budget movies and certainly plenty of no budget horror movies that were effectively made, whether or not, you know, they had that budget or, you know, the means that say uh, like a conjuring movie would have. I just in confronting Hooper's entire filmography, if you look at a list of it, I don't know that you don't want to say he's a bad director, but also if you have three or four good ones and 20 bad ones, You know, at a certain point, you have to start to wonder, were some of the good ones blind luck? Was that the DP that was making it better than it actually was? I think Hooper's an interesting case for that, because I don't think it's as evenly split as some directors you might have this conversation about, where it's like a hit for every miss. You know, he's largely miss, as far as I'm concerned. He's unquestionably inconsistent. You could be the biggest Toby Hooper fan in the world, and you have to admit the Mangler's a miss. Spontaneous combustion is a movie nobody remembers for good reason. It's you know the toolbox murders is a miss. Like you remember the the great ones, and you know I, I think I might be the only one on this chat that actually got to know Toby Hooper a little bit, not a lot, but he he was an Austin guy. I'd go to film festivals in my teen years, and I met. Uh, I met him, oddly enough, at a really great double feature that, you know, it's the kind of thing that you read in like Hollywood memoir books, you know, looking back on it now. But they did a double feature of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Austin Film Festival, I think. And Wes Craven was there to introduce Nightmare on Elm Street and Toby Hooper was there to introduce Chainsaw. And damn. And afterwards, the two guys were just standing around talking with people. And, and uh, you know, I, I kind of got to know him there and I'd bump into him at film festivals. And, you know, I talked to him about Poltergeist and all this other stuff. He was the nicest guy in the world. And I know that there's a lot of Toby Hooper fans out there that get real defensive about him. And I want to couch everything I'm about to say with the fact that I knew him a little bit and I have nothing but respect for what he achieved. And I have nothing but respect for him as a person. He was just a good guy, like deep down, like uh, Mm -hmm. another director uh, friend that I met around that time that I'm still friends with to this day is Don Coscarelli, who did the Phantasm films. He is like, they're just, that group is like just the nicest, you know, the filmmakers that made shit in the seventies and eighties, like are almost to the person, the sweetest, most humble people you'll ever meet. I think that it's unquestionable that Toby Hooper has had an impact on horror in a way that many better directors have never been able to achieve. That is unquestionable. I also think that he is inconsistent to the point to where you, you do have to question whether his hits are just the right combination of cast and crew, the right movie at the right time, the right story at the right time. There is, is definitely a lack of consistency with his filmography and specifically just looking at movies that have his name on it, you can really only hold up two. You can hold up Texas Chainsaw and Poltergeist as being mm-hmm. like just top to bottom masterpieces. I'm I'm a huge fan of Chainsaw 2. I think it's one of the most fun movies he, he ever made. I'm a big fan of Life Force. Yeah, as a kid, I really loved his Invaders from Mars. I don't know if it would hold up now. Um, there are movies that he's made that I really like, but I, I know that, you know, DC said that it's been litigated, you know, to death, the ownership of Poltergeist. 
But, you know, I've I've talked to so many people. Poltergeist is one of my favorite movies. It's one of the movies that I think really shaped who I was. It's my first memory of all time is Poltergeist is, is waking up. I must have been two or three years old and I woke up in my babysitter's lap and she was watching Poltergeist on TV. And it was the scene when the coffins were coming up out of the ground and Craig T. Nelson <laughs> screaming. And I remember that. It, I remember that is not my first movie memory. That's my first memory of life. So Poltergeist has been with me from the very beginning. Because I've been able to visit a lot of sets and meet a lot of people in the film industry, I have met many people who worked on the film. And and I met um, a, a makeup person who told me, you know, straight to my face that Spielberg was the main creative force on that and that Toby Hooper was more like a second unit director than a, the main director. And I'm like, okay, well that, that clocks. And then uh, before she passed, I got to know Zelda Rubenstein a lot. Oh, wow. Like you know, we, we got really close and, and she was the kind of person who wouldn't, didn't give a shit about burning bridges, especially, uh, you know, towards the end of her life, she was just the most outspoken, wonderful person you could, you could hope to meet. One of the first times I talked to her, I asked her about the Spielberg versus Hooper thing. And I, I, I couched it very diplomatically. Like, there's all this talk, you know, it's no question that, you know, Toby Hooper influenced this and Spielberg influenced this aspect. And I was trying to give her a way to, to be political about it if she wanted to. And she straight up said, word for word, I worked for six days on Poltergeist and I was never directed by anybody except for Steven wow. Spielberg. Bust. And yeah, I you can't give Hooper total credit for poltergeist. That's just, even if he was a journeyman director executing the producer's wishes, that's not even the case there. That is such a complicated mess. And I've told this to many people who are big fans of Toby's who are like friends of Toby's. And I know that they don't want to diminish his impact with that film because that film is so huge in his filmography but there's no question in my mind that that uh, he wasn't the main creative force on that movie outside of life force there's no other movie that he's made that's you know kind of even looked similar to that but what i will give toby credit for and i'm sorry i've been going on so long about this but what i will give him credit for are all those big swings that's mm-hmm. that's when toby's at his best like the this movies like spontaneous combustion nobody remembers because it's just a mediocre boring anybody could have made that movie i felt the same way about his toolbox murders any random nobody could have made that movie at least the mangler is so weird and it takes swings life force is so fucking bizarre it's such yeah, a weird ass movie that at least makes it interesting and, and for a conversation, you know, in the Mangler's case, it's not something that's interesting enough to recommend people watch, but at least it's something to hold on to. And in Life Force, I think a lot of those swings actually connected, and that's why that movie works. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 is for sure Toby Hooper just saying, fuck it, you know, we're all high on cocaine and we're going to just make the most fun fucking movie, you know, we can make. And that's what they did. And I wish there was more stuff like that, you know, like his Eaten Alive, which was his follow up to Chainsaw, is a dreadfully boring movie. I I don't know what it is about those off movies for Hooper, but that's kind of where I stand after five minutes of talking nonstop. I apologize. I think my bottom line on this is that the answer to the question doesn't really matter. If you are Toby Hooper and you directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's it. It doesn't matter anything you did after that. That movie is so iconic that Toby Hooper could have fucking directed commercials for the rest of his life. And it, and it really wouldn't matter. He contributed something that is bigger than probably anyone, you know, in this conversation will ever fucking accomplish. And so 
It doesn't matter if he was a good director or a bad director. I do wish I liked this one more, but I I agree with Eric that the the weirdness of it uh, does come through, and I appreciate. Yeah, that. there's almost there's a weird element of like I don't know, like where you think about Poltergeist, you think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which which is indisputably a movie that he was responsible for and like you see a lot of the things that are good about texas chainsaw massacre in this movie but in a weird way it's just about like how much of them you have or like the difference between like the subject matter of your movie and then how you express it or film it or just tell the story or like the overall vibe of the movie compared to the subject matter because what works about poltergeist is like you're taking something very crazy and implausible, which is like just a, it's a haunted house. This family lives in a haunted house and you're making it very, very plausible. And that's what's so scary and imaginative and wonderful about it is the, and it does feel very Spielberg. So it makes sense to hear that he effectively directed it um, where it's very much like, we're taking this thing that feels very, that feels very out of left field. It's a haunted house. It's ghosts. It's spooks. It's, it's craziness. And we're saying like, we're trying to make that feel as plausible as possible. And this is happening in suburbia. This is happening next door. This is happening to real people. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre has that too, where it's sort of like, these are teens. It's filmed very obviously like no budget, 70s, super loosey-goosey fucking verite. It feels very like it could have been filmed by one of these kids. Like it almost feels like, I mean, I haven't seen it a long time, but my memory of it is like, it almost feels like it could have been a 70s version of a found footage movie. And you could just believe that like one of these like stoner college kids is is operating the camera. Like that's that's how it feels. And that lends a real plausibility to it so that then when you fall into, oh my gosh, these people have fallen into the clutches of these weird, creepy, backwoods, almost quasi-mutant people that have, you know, they they have like a weird, they have a lot of what this movie has. Their, their shit is very production designed. It's very much a like world that these kids fall into, but because everything mm-hmm. around it and because the kids are so plausible that fall into it, that makes it scary as opposed to like, wait, when did these like, when did these people who doesn't don't feel like they could like just even raise food to their mouths, much less design an entire very spooky production designed haunted house. Like when did they have time to do this? It feels plausible and that's what makes it feel scary. Whereas in this movie, everything's on the same level. It's not like, let's go, let's try to figure out how to make a creepy haunted laundry machine plausible and feel like it exists in the real world, which might actually make it scary. Maybe it'll never rise above how silly that premise sounds. But instead, I feel like what they did is rather than, or what what maybe Toby Hooper himself did is rather than tamp everything around the laundry, the haunted laundry machine down and make it really plausible in hopes of making that feel more plausible and therefore scarier. They brought everything up to the level of haunted laundry machine. Everything's exaggerated. Everything's hmm. big. Everything feels like either a weird video game cutscene or like a, a Argento outtake or whatever it does. It just doesn't feel scary really. And then I also think like one of the things that make me go like, this would be a really hard movie to make scary no matter what is like, at least Christine was mobile. You know what I mean? Cars, if they're haunted, can move in this movie up until the very, very end, you're like, just don't go near it. 
Don't go near it. Unplug that motherfucker. (laughs) Well, I think they even try that and that doesn't work, but like they can still not go. People keep going like, I got to take a look at this thing. It seems pretty haunted. Anyway, I sort of got distracted. Oh no, I almost fell in. You know, just like, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. There's just something fundamentally kind of undramatic about having a fully stationary villain. Well, and that's what's kind of really effective by the, the short stories ending whatever they do to the machine gives it the ability to be mobile like that, that whatever this exorcism gone wrong has actually freed it. And that to me is way more effective. Like now this is out there and it's just going to continue to tear people up. And in the movie, they don't do that. It just goes back to being a laundry machine. That's evil, of course, but it's always there. It's just kind of sitting there. Like to me, that's way less effective. And speaking of less effective, is it anybody else get creeped out? by this widower Ted Levine who is now bringing flowers there at the end, like in a definite romantic gesture to the girl who just turned 16. They make a big plot point that she just turned 16. <laughs> and and here he, he shows up at the end thinking that she's all, you know, better now and she's now managing the laundry. And we find out that she's now in her, her dead uncle's role. <laughs> she is the new uh, Robert England. No, nah, that seems uh, fine. That seems I fine. mean, yeah, we haven't yeah, even fine. really yeah, cool. touched on the like very unnecessary and creepy level of like they 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 make it very explicit that the Robert England character is like also like sexually exploiting his workers or like anytime one of them almost oh, gets yeah. like injured or hurt in some way, which seems to happen like all the time, with the exception of the much <laughs> older lady who straight up falls in and gets eaten alive. Like, I, I, I get that, like, on some level, I think they also thought that, again, that this is f- feeding into the thematicness of the movie is like, this machine mangles the people literally, and then this, like, evil, gross, lecherous boss, like, mangles them exactly. And so I, like, I get that, but it just felt like, at least in the way it was handled, I think it probably could have been more deftly handled and maybe even worked. But I think the way that it happens here is just very, like, exploitative and gross and creepy, especially when we learn that it's like, oh yeah, ostensibly most of these people are teens and it's just very like, they're also just on a, on a, on just a filmmaking legibility level. The fact that they cast eight women who all look almost exactly the same, have the like exact same haircut. <laughs> like they all look like they're weird, like Jean triple horns in training. Like they have that sort of like nineties <laughs> sort of like longish curly hair. It doesn't, it just doesn't, it makes it really hard to follow like who's who. So at a certain point they were like, wait, but that's his niece. And I was like, wait, was he just like, trying to is it clear that he's in some weird sort of like creepy exploitative relationship with his niece oh no that was somebody else it's very very confusing although i will say one of the things that i did find schlocky in a funny good way about the movie is exactly what you just described where it's like a number of people get like fully actually transformed by the machine so one of these women who he's in one of these gross exploitative relationships with ends up losing her finger in the machine. And then he's like, you're one of us now. And then in the next scene, she t- has like a Sandy at the end of Greece transformation where now she has like a different <laughs> haircut and she's like bad, you know, like that. I really appreciate it. And then I, I agree. I didn't, I didn't necessarily read him bringing flowers as explicitly romantic necessarily. I thought he was like, cause he had been like, Oh, he's going to visit her in the hospital, whatever. But, but either way, I, I see what you're saying about that. But then like when he shows up and they reveal that this like 
the niece character who has been literally doing nothing but screaming and crying the whole time. Like she's not even 16. Like she is like fully six years old has now transformed into the (laughs) new Robert England. Who's like, you gotta like literally has his voice and just is like (laughs) penguining out was a big laugh for me. And was again, where you're like, this is a big fucking swing. I, 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 I have to respect it on, on some level, even though as it's, as it is executed in the movie is ridiculous. Once again, that concern's coming back that we're making this sound too interesting. <laughs> um, you know, it's this is a this is a great movie to talk about. Yes, it is not a great movie to watch, but there is like there's something chewy about it. I could probably talk about this for for another three hours. I mean, did you, you ever know, like, just ask so yourself? Did you ever want shit. to watch James Gum as a detective shoot off his own trench coat? Because <laughs> he does that in this movie. <laughs> I do I do love Ted Levine. I'm I'm with Vespi on that. He's one of those guys. You know, when he shows up, you're like, oh fuck yeah. Ted Levine. He's always gonna bring some weird fucking sinister shit to to whatever he's doing. Um But I would say to your point, Scott, though, I, I agree with you. We wanna be transparent with people that this movie is in no way as entertaining as we are making it sound. It is very boring. I literally felt like like I truly felt like there was half an hour left in this movie for four hours. Like I kept checking. Yeah. <laughs> it kept getting longer. It felt like it was rubbing it in my face because people kept talking about like time, time. I don't have any time. And I think one of the things that typifies like how slow paced it is and just the amount of like dramatic malpractice that's going on on a screenwriting level is he's been talking to this guy, picture man the whole time who you're never really sure or at least for most of the movies, like, is he a local newspaper photographer? Is he like, does he a, a police photographer? You ultimately realize, oh, he's the police photographer, even though most of the time you're like, why would he be going into the morgue to take pictures that he's ostensibly, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. <laughs> but then like he, he, at one point, right before he dies is like, go check in my office. I have like a present for you. He, he's like, I'm going to go develop these pictures that I took of like, whatever, and then he's like, I'm, I have this present for you. So you're thinking, oh, he's going to have like pictures of the thing. And then I was thinking maybe just because I watched The Omen this week, like the original The Omen that features a mm-hmm. a photographer who ends up taking pictures that reveal like who the targets of this like demon are going to be because there's like photographic yeah. artifacts. That foreshadows the how they're going to die. I yeah. was assuming like, okay, these pictures are going to be like, see, there's a demon in the machine or whatever. But it's not that the pictures never play in. He just ends up leaving him a thing full of news clippings that reveals this like completely illogical conspiracy about how the the, the rich people in the town feed their kids to this machine ostensibly to keep making them be rich. But I'm truly like, how can an industrial laundry on any scale be like the wealth making engine of a town for like an entire ostensibly like class of elites that live in this town. It doesn't make any sense. And I was so frustrated when the pictures that the guy kept taking literally never factored in. (laughs) Yeah. That, that notebook is some, it would be like today if you said it today and the guy died and he's like, I'm gonna, I'm leaving you something and you open up a a file or something and it's just QAnon message boards talking about (laughs) adrenaline. Oh, okay. Right. It it, it is like, oh fuck man. Okay. I guess this is where we are. The worst Rorschach's (laughs) journal of all time. (laughs) You're right. Before we wrap this up, I was briefly aware 
just kind of the outskirts of my mind, remembering that they made a direct-to-video sequel to this. I was not aware that they made two direct-to-video sequels. There yeah, are two yeah. other Mangler movies out there. Have either of you seen any of them? Fuck no. I haven't, but I did discover that they existed, like you did, on IMDb after watching this movie, and I was... Very enticed to learn that the second one is not called The Mangler 2. It's called The Mangler 2.0. And it concerns a, a like a, a girl letting the Mangler virus accidentally loose on her school's computer system. And mm-hmm. I'm just and like, Lance Henriksen is in it. Who is? Lance, Lance Henriksen. I mean, I, and he gets transformed into like a cyborg by the Mangler virus. I mean, guys, it, it, I'm coming back on this. We're watching the Mangler 2.0. <laughs> like, this is a fait accompli at this point. When I saw that, I was I'm, like, <laughs> I absolutely, the original Mangler I thought was like very misguided and very, very boring. I kept wishing it was over and there's no way I won't watch the Mangler 2.0. I got a pitch for both of you. None of us have seen the Mangler 2, right? Correct. I think we should do a Mangler two commentary and it's our first viewing of yes. it across the board. I'm in, yeah. I'm, I'm I would, in I would, I'm, my calendar. I'm sharing my entire G cal with you. It's just, just pick, pick two hours. Let's go. The third one. Uh, I read about that one a little bit. It didn't sound as bananas. The Mangler two sounded like the American psycho two to the original Mangler. You know, like, I don't know if you ever saw American Psycho 2, but they like, it turns out that like one of Patrick Bateman's victims survived and now she's in college or something. And now she starts killing people. And it's like a completely different fucking animal than everything that was going on in the original American Psycho. And Mangler 2 sounds like that. They put it on a college campus. You know, there's probably a lot of topless women in this movie i'm imagining and then you got lance henriksen transforming into a cyborg yeah i'll fucking watch that yeah i would be shocked if any of the sequels have this movie's level of bizarro weird weirdly fleshed out again it is funny that it was new line cinema because i did keep thinking about for whatever reason like the shire or something it just felt like where they lived was very weirdly idyllic for what they were trying to do and very production designed. Like the fucking, the <laughs> friend, the neighbor who's into black magic has a full on, like he, his backyard is like a, the sixpence none the richer kiss me video. Like it's crazy. Yeah. How he's got that little bridge. Out it is with like a weird fairy wonderland. Like I, I doubt that either of the sequels have this movie's level of, bizarro weird detail that even though watching it is an unpleasant experience does make me go like this this movie is a artistic and ambition at least like noble failure that's fair that's fair on paper <laughs> asterisk mangled, mangled this is a very paper. interesting movie asterisk 14 pages of foot do, do not watch it <laughs> do not subject yourself to this and that's probably a good point to wrap this up. DC, do you have anything coming up you want to you want to tease? Um, nothing particularly uh, um, that's tied to any particular date. My my podcast, Stay for Dinner, is about home cooking, and that comes out every uh, Tuesday. And um, that yeah yeah just continues into into the future. So check that out. And uh, uh, I wrote a couple of books: The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had to, and Crap Kingdom both of which I think would be appealing to people that like Stephen King stuff. They are both uh, in one case, a a sort of suburban coming of age sci-fi adventure. And then the other one is a suburban uh, fantasy adventure. So I I, I think you'd like them uh, and, and check them out. 
I have a question about your podcast. Sure. Uh, I, because I, I confess I have not listened to it. I don't, I don't like podcasts, <laughs> but, um, is, is the premise that you and your guest are both making the same thing? It, ori- so originally and eating together, complicated answer. Originally it was, I would make something, record myself making it, and then somebody would come over and eat it. And then we would, you know, talk about mostly just about like where <laughs> cooking fits into their lives. But, yeah. uh, you know, cut to uh, everything 2020. And so basically now on the show, I make something, I make a dish and then we, I basically go to a pre-recorded interview with a guest where we talk about food memories, how cooking does and doesn't fit into their life. Sometimes the person has a particular kind of food expertise. Like this week, I, I interviewed this guy, Joe Berkowitz, who just wrote this book, American Cheese, all about the world of American artisanal cheese making. Um, and then other times they're just a comedian or other fun guests who either does cook and likes it. And we talk about that or they hate it. And we talk about that. And we just talk about everything food is connected to, which is everything. Yeah, if enough. you had to make a Mangler inspired <sighs> home cooked meal, what would oh, that man. be? I wonder if it would be something like pasta, like a pasta type, you know, like a rolled pasta. Where you have to make your yeah, own pasta like and mangled. roll it. Um, maybe like, mm. stri- maybe like uh, with, with, to be really tacky, maybe it would have like, you know, it would be like a striped pasta with like streaks of like beet, beet juice in it or something for like a little bit of a blood effect. Mm. And a little dashing of belladonna. Oh yeah. Just for, uh, just pinch. for umami, you know? If it were me, it would just be a bucket of Jägermeister with uh, chunks of onion floating in it. <laughs> that would represent the film? The mangler. Yeah. <laughs> Eat up. Here's a ladle. Get to work. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for joining us, DC. And uh, let's seriously do that mangler too. Oh, show. absolutely. I can't wait. Thanks for having me back, guys. Many thanks to DC for... Well, not no, no thanks to DC. He made us watch the mangler. But I will say that that conversation was much more interesting than watching the actual movie was. So, so yeah. there is that. And I, I always like talking to DC. He did a dream catcher episode with us once before and the, the audio was a little bit wonky. So that remained on our Patreon. It's still there. If, uh, if you go to the, the Patreon account, which is patreon.com backslash the King cast as always. But, uh, I love that dude and, uh, always a pleasure to speak with him. I'm still thinking about that jacket, dude. I know you love that jacket. Oh, I can't get enough of it. I know what I'm getting you for for uh, Christmas. It's going to oh, be well, Ted Levine's jacket. The actual jacket. I'll put yes. it on a mannequin and display it on my front porch. <laughs> so we have, uh, what, a couple episodes to to tell everybody about. We have our main feed episode coming next week. And we have this Friday's Patreon bonus episode. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, let's do let's do next week's episode. Next week's episode is uh, Storm of the Century. Those of you who are signed up for our Patreon have already heard this episode as an early access app. Uh, our guest for this show, which I can go ahead and reveal because it's the information's already out there, is Meredith Borders, the managing editor at Fangoria, one of my old co-workers and, and a friend to the show. Um, we think we did this one justice. That's a lengthy series. We've had a lot of requests for that episode. And uh, Meredith brings a lot of passion to the table. So if you're a Storm of the Century fan, you are in for a treat. 
And it's also should be worth noting that we recorded this episode with Meredith long before the whole Fangoria podcast network thing was uh, in the cards for us. So yeah, that's so it's true. a nice, it's an, it's a nice bit of, uh, I don't know, serendipity. I feel like we recorded that one forever ago. And what a perfect episode for December while the snow is falling and people are trapped indoors. And uh, ancient wizards are demanding uh, children. That's so. only in some parts of the country, as I understand it. <laughs> yeah, that's an East Coast thing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the Patreon this Friday, uh, we are doing another mailbag episode. We allow our, our patrons to send us random questions, and we, we answer them on the air. And uh, we did one of these episodes once before. It went really well. So we figured, hey, we'll, we'll make this a regular feature. So we're doing that again. It's always yeah. a fun time. It makes the show a little bit more interactive. I would like to tease, though, that we have lined up a really exciting December. There's some really exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Right. If if everybody was committed to recording in the next couple of weeks, records in the next couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> yes. We'll be in a very nice spot. You guys will have some amazing conversations to look forward to. And uh, cross your fingers. Hope that nobody flakes out on us. Yes. This is a, this is a house of cards, man. We got to keep it steady and in place. One person pulls out, the whole fucking thing comes tumbling down. So, Bronson Pinchot, you better not cancel on us. Bronson Pinchot will never fail us. Uh, all right, thanks for listening, and uh, make sure to follow us uh, on Twitter at KingCast19. You can join up on our Patreon at Patreon.com/backslash/TheKingCast, and uh, that's it. Very well. All right, see you guys next week. <laughs>